You turn to Daniel chapter 9, Daniel 9, we pick up the 70th 7, 70 weeks of Daniel, and I believe this particular passage is the most important one in the Old Testament with regard to understanding biblical prophecy and its timing. If you get this one, the rest of the passages that you find uh, scattered throughout the Old Testament, specifically Zechariah, Isaiah, and then especially when you get to the New Testament book of Revelation, uh, this one is the key, I think, to unlocking really very specifically the timing and why we look to the Word of God uh, in a literal way for what some would say are symbolic things. Liberal theologians have a tendency to take this passage and all of the rest of the Old Testament passages and look at them in a figurative way or a symbolic way. I happen to believe God was speaking in a future sense. And while he was speaking during a time when you could relate the things that were going on in Daniel's life to those moments and time that he lived in, that the ultimate fulfillment was in view for a long ways off. And this missing seven from the equation that we're going to identify tonight is a key because that seven is this grand parentheses, if you will, in God's prophetic plan, very specifically for Judah. Remember, that's who he's speaking to. He's speaking to the remnant of Israel. And so when you look at the history of the Jewish people, you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob. Jacob is a heel catcher. He's a deceiver. He finally gets it. His name is changed to Israel, governed by God. He has 12 sons. Those 12 sons are the forebearers of the 12 tribes. During the time of the kings, specifically in the 800 B.C. range, between 700 and 850 B.C., uh, you have this massive onslaught that takes place under the Assyrian army, army Tiglath-Pileser, Shalamanser, Sinasherib, these incredible generals who were also kings, uh, eventually wipe out the ten northern tribes. Those tribes are taken captive, they're dispersed to the world, really never to be seen again. Certainly, pieces and portions of all 12 tribes not only existed then, they exist today in the world. But as far as a people, as far as a worshiping group of people, the children of Israel condensed down to just really one tribe representing all the remnant that we saw as Isaiah names his sons, as Shir Yeshub, this Son goes with them to the fuller's field to greet King Ahaz that we just studied last Thursday night. His name means a remnant returns. And so God has been looking to the Jewish people for a remnant to return since the time of the Babylonian conquest, which would come after the Assyrian conquest. And so the Babylonians, Jeremiah predicted, would take the Jewish people, the remnant, Judah, captive that period of time would be 70 years. That 70 years is just about up. And so it is at that time when Daniel is still in captivity that this prophecy is given. It's given to the remnant, Judah, and it's regarding the entirety of the nation. And so we pick up tonight in verse 24 of Daniel 9. And before we read, we'll pray. Father, thank you for the incredible beauty of your word. And Lord, we pray that this prophetic passage would speak to us tonight. And Lord, why there is reason for us to believe that the full fulfillment of this is not only still future to us tonight, um, but it will remain future until the time of the end. Lord, the very last days. And as we believe that we are drawing near to that time, as we look at human history, we often ask ourselves, how long, O Lord, will you tarry? And so, God, we pray that you'd speak to us, encourage us, strengthen us, 
Would our faith grow tonight? And would you bless us as your people? Uh, and speak, Lord, loudly and clearly so we can hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. And so remember, the only people left are Judah. They are representative of all Israel. They are the remnant that is left at that time. And there still remains a remnant today in the world. The beauty of the difference between now and then is that now Israel has fulfilled uh, that beautiful passage as Ezekiel speaks of this valley of dry bones that will once again rise up and breathe and live and Israel's back in the land. And so these 70 weeks were determined with Israel in view. Now the reason we know that's true and we know it's not the church is because the church didn't exist during the writing of this prophecy. There was no church. Jesus had not come yet. It would be another nearly half, uh, well, it would be a full half a millennia. And so it would be more than 500 years before Jesus would come. Uh, And so it's not speaking of your people figuratively uh, in one spot and then symbolically in another This is a literal period of time for a literal group of people and for a literal place, your holy city, which has always been, Zion's Hill has always been Jerusalem. So this is a prophecy about the remnant of Israel, known then only as Judah, and the holy city, Jerusalem. And here's what it says. Now I want you to notice very carefully the remainder of verse 24. Because I think you can see very easily they would have not known all of these things at that time. Remember God is passing this along through the angel Gabriel to Daniel. And Gabriel saying here's what's going to happen as these 70 weeks are determined for your people, this remnant that is Judah, and for your holy city Jerusalem to finish the transgression. To make an end to sins. To make a reconciliation for iniquity. To bring everlasting righteousness. To seal up vision and prophecy. And to anoint the most holy. And so it's very clear that in the remainder of this verse. These are some things that from a Jewish perspective. Many of them are still yet future. Because if you look at the results of these things, in order to finish your transgression, which all sin is sin against God, amen? You have to confess that sin. That sin has to be forgiven. The only way for that to happen is for you to know Jesus personally, amen? That's what the Bible plainly teaches. To make an end of sins. The reason the war in our lives who believe in Jesus Christ has ended, the reason there is no longer enmity is not because I am no longer a sinner, but I am a saved sinner, The reason there is an end to my sins is because Christ has set me free from the bondage of both sin and its penalty, death. So you can really see quite easily that what the angel Gabriel is speaking to Daniel is a condition that is the direct result of someone coming to faith in Jesus Christ. To make a reconciliation for your iniquity. The only way for your debt to be canceled, that's what a reconciliation is. Probably some of you are around long enough to remember we used to use carbon paper. And remember you used to have a ledger sheet and you would make a reconciliation. You would literally write a corresponding ledger entry on the other side. And ultimately you want to come up with a balanced budget or a balanced sheet. We still call those things today, a profit and loss, any balance sheet. The reconciliation means that there's no longer a negative number. That there is a positive number. That'd be a novel thing for our government to think about, wouldn't it? But when you, when you look at this, to make a reconciliation, the only way for me to be reconciled to a holy God is to be what? It's to be holy as he is holy. The only way for that to happen is for me to be found in Christ, correct? And so if what is being pictured here is the direct result of someone being saved, Because the only way for there to be a reconciliation for Judah is the same way there's a reconciliation for Jeff. 
I have to have a personal relationship with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. There's never been any other way to do that. Even the beautiful picture that Judaism was of the finished work of Jesus Christ with all of the feast days, sacrifices, every bit of the Old Testament law, all that was contained within there, it fell short because as close as you ever got to that was the Day of Atonement. And it still fell short. There was never actually a reconciliation under the old covenant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the law of Moses. You only got to the place to where those sins were atoned for. There was a letter of forbearance issued to the children of Israel every year in about mid-October on the Day of Atonement when finally the the sacrifice was made and the scapegoat was sent out and so they kind of got a fresh start to start sinning again. But you were never debt cleared. It's important to understand this because if you get this, then you get what follows. Because this has to be something that relates to a time that's not in Daniel's time. Because this was never possible as a nation. This was possible as individuals believed by faith, just like Abraham did. Abraham believed God by faith and it was accounted unto him as righteousness, right? But he was not actually saved until Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross. The debt wasn't paid in full. Abraham waited in Abraham's bosom. That's the whole context of Luke chapter 16. Abraham was waiting for Jesus to finish what needed to be finished before he was actually debt free. He was waiting by faith. And so this picture that the angel lays out here to bring everlasting righteousness. The Jewish people never had everlasting righteousness. They had temporary righteousness that was given to them by God for a period of time based on the conditions being met of the law. But it was conditional righteousness. It was temporary. And it was only for that period of time until they sinned again, which probably was about as long as it took the high priest to take his first step out of the Holy of Holies. Because I'm sure he was thinking something with regard to everything that transpired about someone out that was waiting for him that was you know, going to say something that he didn't want to hear. To seal up vision and prophecy. To, to bring an end to the things that needed to be said. That didn't happen until Jesus died on Calvary's cross and everything that needed to be said about salvation was said. Until Jesus said from the cross, to tell us die, it is finished, it was not finished. It was real close, and it got closer and closer for those final two and a half to three years of Jesus' life as he spoke forth all the truths that he spoke into the people's lives as he ministered in the region of Galilee, as he sat on the mountaintop and spoke this incredible sermon we call the Sermon on the Mount, as he gave the Beatitudes, as he spoke the parables. They were getting closer and closer and closer and closer. And then came the final week of his life, which was a Passover week. And during that week, he was selected as the Lamb of God by the people. He was announced as king by the people. Do you remember what they cried out? They cried out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They announced him king. So they actually said who he was without believing in their heart that that was true. And to anoint the most holy. And this is an interesting chunk that starts to take us in the future past and all the way to the end of the age of grace. Because in order for there to be a most holy place, which is not just your heart, But the actual most holy place, that would have to be in a temple. The problem with that happening today is there's no temple to anoint. There is no most holy place today. The most holy place is actually underneath an Islamic mosque called the Dome of the Rock. The Haram al-Sharif. And underneath that is the rock that used to be underneath 
the most holy place. And so there's a specific thing that's being said here that's pointing us to a time that Daniel could not even define because he didn't have all the pieces. Verse 25, know therefore and understand. And now we're giving, given very precise, prophetic points of measurement. From the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem or build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, Messiah the Prince, the only name in all of the Old Testament that that applies to is Messiah himself. King of kings, Lord of lords, the anointed one. That's what Messiah means. It means the anointed. So from the going forth of the command to, uh, to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's 69 weeks. And the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And so we're given very minute details. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah himself shall be cut off. But not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. In other words, there's going to be a temple and there will be people who will destroy that temple. Messiah will come. He's going to be cut off, but not cut off for his own sin, for someone else's sin. And the end shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war of desolations are determined. And then he, he being the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, as we've already been told, as Daniel has prophesied, there will be a little horn that will rise up speaking blasphemous things. He's going to come out of the old revived Roman Empire. He'll be part iron and part clay. Uh, and he will be a world ruler. He's going to come out of the former Greek Empire. He'll be born first into what we would have called the Roman Empire. And out of the Roman Empire, there will spring up one final voice out of those ten horns. And he'll begin to speak. And the world will listen. But in the middle of the week, and remember we established last time, that this week is speaking of a week just like we would speak of a dozen. It can be a dozen of anything. And in this particular case, we know that this is, this is weeks of years. Because the length of time that initiates this, because the children of Israel have already spent 70 years in captivity, we know that this is weeks of years. It's not weeks of days. And so there will be a period of time, a final seven-year period, in the middle of that final seven years, the middle of that last week, it'll bring an end to the sacrifice and an offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, or the abomination of desolation. Jesus himself speaks of this very event in the Olivet Discourse. Even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. And so as we look at this prophetic picture, we're going to hopefully decode this whole thing for you tonight so you can put it in your memory banks. Great book. It's still available. Sometimes it's hard to find called The Coming Prince. And while I can't recommend that the whole book is necessarily perfectly accurate, there is a piece of the book that is absolutely accurate. And Sir Rod... Robert Anderson, as he writes, he was a detective in Scotland Yard, and so he's very good uh, at deductive reasoning. And as he disassembled all of these pieces and then uh, tried to see where they fit within the prophetic timeline, uh, he ended up kind of coming to the conclusion that there were 490 years from Canaan to the kingdom, 490 years from the kingdom to servitude in Egypt, and 490 years, this mystical era of Daniel's 70th week. And while his calendar was off a little bit. Uh, he did actually come up with the proper timeline 
for this particular piece of the puzzle and how to unwrap it when this would be. And as we kind of refine the dates and, and we being Calvary Chapel, those of us who uh, have sat underneath Chuck's teaching, we went through a whole series of studies with Pastor Chuck where we just kind of really dug into this whole particular thing. And the, the Bible seems to pretty clearly indicate, and I think I could make a case that it's absolutely spot on positive, that we, we believe that Canaan as far as Israel's entrance into the promised land, was in 1406 B.C. Um, Saul became king. He was the first of these kings during this period that uh, we could say is the kingdom to servitude. In other words, they wanted a king. They got a great king. Saul was the first one. Uh, We know exactly when that was as well. That was 1050 B.C. We also know that they went into servitude in Babylon in 605 B.C. And the reason we know this is not just the Bible, but the extra-biblical records that we have, specifically of the Babylonian Chronicles of Nabonidus, and also the Assyrian, Assyrians kept marvelous records about their conquest. And so we have all of these things. Uh, you can go to the British National Museum, you can travel to the Getty when it's touring here in California, and you can see these wall panels that actually describe the dates, times, even Jewish kings that were taken captive. And so we know some of these times very, very, very precisely. We also know when the restoration of Jerusalem took place, and that was in 444 B.C. And the reason we know that is because, again, we have some very specific details that are given to us. If you were to look, about, look at these things, you're probably asking yourself, well, why do I really care? Why should I care about this at all? Because ultimately, we're talking about Messiah in this passage. That's the anointed one that's going to come. So if there's a prediction that's made, which there is, that says that there's going to be a restoration of Jerusalem, and we know when that started, and then we're told exactly how long it's going to be before that happens, then it should enable us to predict the time that Jesus comes into Jerusalem, which is exactly what this passage of Scripture has enabled us to do. Christ is not going to obtain that kingdom when he first comes into Jerusalem during that first advent or his first coming, is he? Not only is he not going to receive the kingdom, he's actually going to be rejected, which is exactly what this prophecy says. He will be cut off. He'll be rejected. And so if you look at this, there are seven sevens. That's seven times seven or 49 years. There are 62 sevens. That'd be 62 times seven or 434 years. And then there's one final seven. So if you put all of these things together, it gives us a very specific number of years that have to transpire before the coming of Messiah, the Prince. We actually know some dates. We know exactly how long it took to rebuild Jerusalem. Recorded very, very carefully. According to the book of Nehemiah, it took exactly 49 years. And then 434 years later, Messiah came. That total is 483. If you total these up, that only leaves seven more years. And so in looking at this particular passage and trying to figure out this exact date, there's some of these things we know. Because in Nehemiah chapter 2, which you ladies have been studying with Connie, uh, you, you know that there was a decree given to us by Artaxerxes. What most biblical scholars have done an attempt to say that Messiah didn't come and that we're just living in this ethereal kingdom age, those that hold the view that we would call all millennial or no millennium, those people that don't believe in a rapture, do not believe in the thousand-year reign of Christ, who don't believe that any of these things are to be taken literally, they're all to be taken symbolically, they, they will tell you, well, there's, there's four commands, and there are. There's a command in Ezra. There in chapter 1, given by Cyrus. There's a second command that's given by Darius in Ezra chapter 6. There's also in the book of Ezra another command given by Artaxerxes. But there is also a final command given by Artaxerxes the king in Nehemiah chapter 2. And it is that one that we focus in on for a very specific reason. Because the angel Gabriel tells us that this wall is going to be rebuilt in troublesome times. None of the rest of those three decrees lead you to a time of trouble. They actually lead you to a time of cessation in in a general sense of war. 
And so as the rebuilding of the temple happens, it actually isn't even fully completed uh, during Ezra. It's kind of this funky half temple thing that people bemoaned when they saw it. They remembered the former temple and its glory, and so they, they whined about it. They said, it's like, no, this can't be the one. And so Artaxerxes, uh, recorded there in Nehemiah chapter 2, gives the actual command. And, and it, is, it is said, because uh, the indicator by Gabriel is it will be rebuilt in times of trouble. And that date of Artaxerxes' specific decree gives us a picture of when that was. Because he tells us in the month of Nisan... In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, which is March or April, depending on which calendar you're using, whether you're using a Babylonian calendar or our current calendar, Gregorian calendar, uh, is either going to be March or April of 444 BC. And so Christ's death occurred on Friday, uh, the 14th of Nisan in 33 AD. And if you do some very simple math, you're going to find that these days that are mentioned here, this whole total period of time, 107,388 days ultimately are going to be the time that it's going to take for, or excuse me, 173,880 days are going to be the total number of days that it takes from the time of the rebuilding of the temple, that decree that's issued by Artaxerxes, until the day that Jesus arrives uh, into Jerusalem and is rejected by those that witnessed him coming in on what we call Palm Sunday. The reason that we think about all these things, the, the reason, again, we can ask the question, why does this matter? And the reason I believe that that trigger is Artaxerxes' decree to rebuild Jerusalem is that it ends on exactly the precise day, because we know when it was, that Passover fell on that particular year. And the reason that's important is because we're told throughout the biblical narrative that that was Passover week. So if this decree ends up on any other day than the beginning of Passover, we are in trouble. But it ends exactly on Passover day, in 33 AD. And so as we begin to unwind this thing, what Jesus said when he entered into Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19 was this. Verse 41, If you, even you, had only known this day, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. You know why Jesus said that? Is because Gabriel told the Jewish people through Daniel exactly when this day would be. And so Jesus had a reason to believe the Jewish people should have been looking for Messiah on that day. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on top of another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. That seems awful harsh, doesn't it? If they didn't know at all when the Messiah might come. But it does not sound harsh at all if they had a good reason to know exactly when Messiah was going to come. Jesus is referring to the words of Daniel. He's saying, if you had just simply listened to your own prophets, if you'd remembered the time, Daniel predicted the 77s. It was the failure of the Jewish people to study the revelation that God had already given them. And the reason this is important is for us today. One of the problems that, that the church faces is biblical illiteracy. Christians don't know what the Bible actually says. Just like most Muslims don't know what the Quran actually says. Most Hindus have no idea what the Vedas say. There's, there's just an assumption of knowledge. 
And so what happens is, just like you have in every other human institution, then instead of the people being empowered with the wisdom themselves, they rely on other people to tell them what it says. And instead of searching the scriptures to see if these things are so, they say, well, you know, I don't know. I guess it must not matter if the pastor didn't say something about it. That's why you are supposed to be Bereans. You are supposed to study to show yourself, not just me, it's what I'm supposed to do for sure, but we should be studying the scriptures. The Jews' failure to study prophecy was tragic for them. Jesus was declared as Israel's king on the day of the triumphal entry. They shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What was the next thing they said? Blessed is the king of Israel. They had it right. They actually got it right. You can read that passage in John's gospel. You you see, they actually did know. But they rejected him. The very next day, recorded in Matthew 21, Mark chapter 14, Jesus is on his way to the temple. He's coming from the Mount of Olives. He's descending the Mount of Olives. He usually stayed up on the Mount of Olives with the disciples. Sometimes he would retreat over to Bethany or Bethpage to be with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. But on the last week of his life, he's descending down the Mount of Olives and he stops and there's a fig tree and he curses that fig tree. And he he begins to, to make his way down to the temple and it's there that he flips over the money changers. He travels to the southern steps. We, we actually usually do a Bible study sitting on the very steps that Jesus ascended into the, the area, the court of the Gentiles, where the exchanging of money would transpire. And there, as he's on his way, he, he drives out the merchandisers, and, and he quotes actually from Jeremiah chapter 7. He's speaking to them prophetically about what the Old Testament says. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. He was reminding them, you should have known this stuff. You should have actually understood these things. You should have been looking for me on this day. We, we, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, told you when I would come. Here I am. Some of you actually announced that I'm here. Jesus stopped in the midst of that quotation. And they, they should have been able to follow with him in their minds and in their hearts and repented right on the spot. But it goes on to say, but I've been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people. You see, they should have understood that. He was coming to remind them, if you don't repent right now, judgment's coming on you. And while you're doing all these things, declares the Lord, there in Jeremiah 7, verses 11 through 15, I spoke to you again and again, and you did not listen. And I called you, but you did not answer. And therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name. He was pronouncing judgment on Israel. He said, look, you have had all that you're going to get. You you should have known. The temple you trust in. They trusted in the temple itself. They didn't trust in the living God who dwelled in it. They trusted in the temple and the sacrificial system and the priests. They trusted in everything and everyone but God. The place that I gave to you and to your fathers and I will thrust you from my presence just as I did to your brothers to the people of Ephraim. Now remember who Ephraim is. That is a single name for the entirety of the ten tribes that disappeared under the Assyrians. Remember what I did. Now put this in your heads. So for 
hundred years. The Assyrians captured Ephraim, the ten northern tribes. They are scattered, they're gone. Nobody can go find the ten northern tribes and go, oh, Dan is over there. And, and, and over here, in, in this particular little region, we have Manasseh. Oh, they were gone. And so as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he's saying, do you guys know your Bibles? Do you understand what it actually says? You know, of course, they didn't everybody carry around a Bible, but they had been taught for centuries. They sat in the synagogue every single Shabbat. And there the books of Jeremiah and Isaiah were carefully dissected by the rabbis. They had heard all this stuff over and over for centuries. On the evening of the day following that triumphal entry as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem, he foretells of that very thing that was prophesied by Jeremiah. Luke chapter 21, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you'll know that desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the city get out. Let those who are in the country not enter the city. For this is a time of punishment in fulfillment for all that has been written. All that's been written where? In what we call the Old Testament. Through the prophets, Jesus believed in the literal fulfillment of the Old Testament prophetic word. He's saying, look, these things are going to happen. But they were spoken of hundreds of years before this day. And Jesus is still telling them, if you guys had only known what time it was. If you had only looked to see, if you'd only remembered what you had already been told, you would have been watching and you would have been waiting. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There'll be great disasters in the land and wrath against this people. Against who? The Jewish people. They'll fall by the sword, will be taken prisoners. To all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The Gentiles still rule Jerusalem. The Jewish people have yet to take back Jerusalem. It is a divided city. If you travel today, three quarters of the Temple Mount is controlled by Gentiles. Actually, all of the Temple Mount, if you want to look at it in one vernacular, but all of the old city, three-quarters of it, belongs to the Gentiles. The Temple Mount itself is fully controlled, at least in a religious sense, by the Muslims. And so if Jesus is saying, this whole thing is because you didn't know when I was coming, you should have. You didn't know what I was doing, and you should have. And then Jesus himself says, the reason these things are going to come upon you is as punishment for all that has been written. If he's actually referring to what we think he's referring to, then there's still some things that have to happen. Because Daniel's prophecy clearly says that part of what's going to happen is what we call the results of being saved. Amen? So it's pointing to that time that the Apostle Paul was writing about as he wrote Romans chapter 11. That day when all Israel would one day be saved. And so it's pointing to a time that is still yet future. There's still one seven, one week left. So verse 26 says, here's the rest of the puzzle. After 62 weeks of sevens, the anointed one will become off and be cut off and have nothing. The Hebrew word there uh, usually denotes a violent end or a death or a complete separation. You can see the same word in Genesis 9 and Psalm 37, Proverbs chapter 2 as well. It's going to be cut off. There, there's going to be no more speaking, in other words. There, there's going to be a time 
when, then, when those who he's talking to, who Gabriel is talking to, are, are not going to see Messiah. Oh, he's here. I know him personally. And so do you, most of you who are in this room tonight. If you know Jesus, you've already had your sins taken care of. Amen? You already have everlasting righteousness. That's part of the salvation package, we could call it. You know, there's no such thing as partial salvation. There's no such thing as somebody who's almost saved. You're a saint or an ain't. Right? You're in or you're out. You're a believer or an unbeliever. You're not like, well, I'm 84% saved. No, the results of salvation come to everyone who is saved, and only people who are saved get any of the results of salvation. You follow that? In other words, you don't kind of, well, I'm kind of sort of sanctified. I'm kind of sort of justified. You know, I'm almost in the kingdom. I'm nearly there. No, you're either in or you're out. You're either in God's kingdom as a believer or you're not. And so the angel is speaking to Daniel about something that is the permanent result of one being saved. And then he goes on to say, oh, and by the way, check this out. There's going to be a holy place again. So one of the great things that you see when you travel to Israel today is the complete lack of a temple on the Temple Mount. There's mosques on the Temple Mount, four of them, but there's no temple. And yet it's saying there's going to be a seven-year period of time that in the middle of it, there's going to be some radical change between, this, between uh, the time that it starts and three and a half years in, because these are weeks of years, and there will be one rise that we've had described as the tenth horn that comes out of the revived Roman Empire, one that we call the Antichrist because we have a picture of him. So when Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, and when we read the book of Revelation, we go, oh, it's that dude, it's also the beast. The one who rises up in the last days. The one who makes a peace treaty with Israel and allows them to worship in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. So here's the kicker. There's no temple in Jerusalem. That means that something is coming before this happens. And that's going to be a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem. On the temple mount. I can pretty much guarantee you if that starts today, as we sit right now politically, you are looking at a major world war if that happens. Because the Temple Mount is controlled by the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. It's not controlled by the Jewish people. Access to the Temple Mount is granted to you by the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, the supreme Islamic ruler who happens to be a Jordanian. It's not the Jewish people. They don't even control the Temple Mount. As close as they can get is this 165-foot-long section of the Herodian stones, the wall, the old foundation of the temple. And the reason that's important is because in AD 70, Flavius Titus, who had become Roman emperor, but General Titus, did exactly what Jesus said. One day you won't see a single stone left, one on top of another, on top of that temple mount. Until Messiah comes. There won't be a temple on that temple mount. There's no temple on that temple mount. But one of the things that's said in this passage is after the Messiah comes, there's going to be a ruler come after him who is going to desolate that temple. It had to have happened after AD 70 because when Jesus spoke those words when he came down from the Mount of Olives, there was still a temple on the temple mount. So it had to be after Jesus' time. And it had to be after the Roman desolation of Jerusalem because during that time, Jerusalem began to be trampled underneath the feet of the Gentiles and it remains so tonight. It's never been back in fully into Jewish control. Interestingly enough, in 1967, as this six-day war breaks out, by the time it's all said and done, the IDF has almost lost on day one. By the end of the sixth day, Moshe Dayan is standing on the Temple Mount. They have captured the Temple Mount. They've retaken it. They've taken the city from the Jordanians. They had at that moment in time the possibility to kick them out. 
And guess what they did? They gave it back to the Jordanians for peace. They said, it's not going to be worth it. We'd rather have peace than have the Temple Mount back. And so they give the Temple Mount back after winning it in a decisive battle. When you travel today, when you look at the Lion's Gate, you can still see the bullet pockmarks all over the edges of the gate where that gate was assaulted by the Israeli Defense Forces and taken. So this picture is one that is of the future, the coming prince of the very last days, the end times, the revived Roman Empire, quite probably the chunk of the European Union that will, I believe, one day rule the most of the world. You see, when Israel crucified the Messiah, the prophetic clock actually stopped ticking. God kind of said, we're going to hit the button and we're just going to stop it for a while. The ensuing time is what we call the age of the Gentiles, the age of grace, the time when people one at a time can know, know the Savior, amen? We live in that time today. If you want to know Jesus, it's as simple as believing the gospel and being saved. But for Israel, they missed that message. They actually cried out at the crucifixion of Jesus. We do. They had honored him as the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And a day later, they're shouting, we do not want this man to rule over us. They missed Messiah the first time. They didn't see him. But they should have known. And by the way, I would have done no better had I been in the crowd. So I want to make it really clear. I probably would have gone, okay. Why? Because their hearts were hard. And so they're setting themselves up for this ruler that's going to come. And I, I, It's so interesting. Right now, Israel tonight would be willing to make a peace treaty basically with anybody. If you study Israeli politics... They are so prone to just making an allegiance. They're doing exactly the same thing that the, Isra- that the Israelite kings did with Assyria. Well, we'll just, we'll just make a treaty with you. We'll make a pact with you. That's what we're studying right now as we study through the book of Isaiah. Well, great, you know, we'll, we'll just make an allegiance. And that should, we'll trust in the horses and chariots, but we're not going to trust in the Lord. The Israelis have attempted to make peace treaty after peace treaty after peace treaty after peace treaty. The Oslo Accords, we're still talking land for peace. They're still parceling off chunks of Israel and trying to give it to the supposed Palestinians, which are not actually a people group that's a collective of Arab, Arabs that lived in the region, typically what you and I would call Bedouin people. They were nomadic people. There's never been a country there, so to speak, beyond the Jewish homeland. And so they're still giving away the West Bank. They're still giving away East Jerusalem. They've still given away Gaza. They've still given away Bethlehem sits in a Palestinian settlement. They've made peace treaties with Hamas. They've made peace treaties with Fatah. They have made peace treaties with the Muslim Brotherhood. They have made peace treaties, in essence with Al-Qaeda, with ISIS, with Hezbollah. Group after group after group after group after group, they're still doing exactly the same thing that the kings did some 2,800 years ago. Well, let's have a peace treaty. That's why Moshe Dayan gave back the Temple Mount. That's why a Jordanian flag flies over it today. That's why King Hussein of Jordan personally paid for, when you see the, the mosque, the Dome of the Rock, it's actually leafed in gold. About $9 million worth of it from the personal gold of King Hussein of Jordan. Daniel told us these things would happen. And he said, Jerusalem is going to be kind of this crazy place 
that's going to have war more often than not. But there is a time when that war is going to become intense and it's going to come to fruition. Just as Jesus said there in John chapter 5, I've come in my Father's name and you do not accept me, but if someone else comes in his own name, you accept him. That is exactly what is going on to this day in Israel. You can come in the name of almost anyone. You will find the most welcoming group of people because they don't want war. They want peace. But you also don't want to get on their bad side because they have the eighth largest military in the world. And so when you look at the timing of these things, it makes you stop and think, well, if all Israel hasn't become saved, if the results that we see in verse 24 haven't yet happened, if there isn't an end, if they haven't come to everlasting righteousness, if the transgressions still continue, if this whole thing was spoken to Judah in the first place, and it was a promise to the Jewish people in default as the remnant, the only part of Israel left, Judah, and it has not yet happened, and there's no temple on the Temple Mount, the only conclusion you can come to is this is still future. Because Jesus said, you should have known the time of my coming. He was referencing Daniel. He said, we told you when that was. My Father and I, the Holy Spirit... Interesting, in Luke chapter 4, we find Jesus will get here very soon on Sunday mornings. He's reading. He sits down in the synagogue, and he begins to read from Isaiah 61. And he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You ever wondered why he didn't finish that passage? He stops dead in the middle of a verse. Because what follows is it follows it is this, the day of the vengeance of your God. The reason Jesus stopped is because the day of the vengeance of their God has not yet come still. It wasn't coming then and it has not yet come, but it will come. Exactly as Jeremiah prophesied. God's not done. He hasn't finished that. That's why Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1 concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances of which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. He says, we've been trying to figure this out for a very, very, very long time. And so this marker that's given to us, this final week, he's going to confirm this covenant for many For one final seven. I believe it's referring to the the very last days when the church is snatched home. When the Antichrist rises, that final horn. When the desolations of Israel finally come. When Isaiah, when you get to chapter 28, it's a sea I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, it says there. For the one who trusts will never be dismayed. And I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep over you from a refuge. And and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. The agreement of the grave will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by you, you will be beaten down by it. He's saying, look, there's going to come a time that we call the time of Jacob's trouble. When Israel finally sees the hand of God in the most extreme and the very last way for the purpose of driving Israel to her knees so she no longer trusts in horses and chariots and technology and weapons of war 
or her allies like the United States. That time of Jacob's trouble described in Revelation chapter 6 through 19 in, in grave detail. Gabriel is the one that assigns the time marker that divides the 70th seven and the second half of it, known as the Great Tribulation. And it is there that he'll put an end to that covenant that was made by the Antichrist for one week. And the Antichrist will allow the temple to become once again an abomination. He's going to tell them, look, ah, great, let's put a temple on the Temple Mount. Let's make everybody happy. I remember for years looking at you know, different charts of how you could get, leave the Dome of the Rock Mosque and still get Solomon's Temple alongside of it, normally to the north side, possibly on the platform where the former uh, Solomon's Porch used to sit, which is on the south end, and it is there that the pinnacle of the Temple was found that Jesus is going to be on in our next study in Luke. But as you're looking at it, it's, like it's very clear the only way this is happening is if God himself allows the children of Israel uh, to build a temple on the Temple Mount. Because around the outside of the Dome of the Rock Mosque is one of the tenets of Islam, which says God has no son. And so it's not like you're going to be worshiping Jehovah over here and Allah over here, because they're not the same guy. And over here, the Jewish people were still looking for the Son of God. In fact, Solomon himself said, can you tell me the name of God's Son? Well, yes, they could. Because Daniel gave him a name, the Son of Man, and Jesus used that name himself. You see, they should have known these things. And so the timing in this passage is not only provocative because it stirs up the thought that once these things begin to unfold, then the very last days, and I mean the very last days, the final week of man's existence in rebellion to God, because that's really what the tribulation is. Right now, God is being gracious and kind, and he's not willing that any should perish, and grace is available to anyone who will cry out to the Lord. But there's going to come a time when you're going to need to sell your children to buy a loaf of bread. You are going to need the mark of the beast to even buy and sell it all. You'll get to that place to where you aren't going to know one day from the next whether you're going to survive. But according to Ezekiel chapter 40 to 44, there's also going to be a temple on the Temple Mount. And then finally, just exactly as Zechariah said, Jesus himself is going to come through that boarded up, that walled up eastern gate called the Golden Gate. I just find it hilarious that the Ottoman ruler Suleiman II decided that the best way to keep Jesus out of Jerusalem was to wall up the Golden Gate like that was going to work. You know, we'll just put stones in there. That'll keep him out. If you read the rest of that passage, the Mount of Olives is going to split in two and a river will go to the east and to the west. So I'm thinking it's going to take a little more than a few rocks to keep Jesus from coming again. And so all of these things point towards a time God was being specific for a reason, but he put this thing in a set of parentheses for a reason with a comma. He said, look, here's where we're going to get to. Messiah is going to come the first time, but he's going to get cut off. And then there's going to be one seven, and he does not define when that seven is going to actually happen. And he says, Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 25, as Jesus is speaking forth this thing called the Olivet Discourse, his, his treatise on the very last days, he says, therefore, in chapter 25, In verses 1 through 13, but at the final end of it, he says, therefore, keep watch. And then he let us know how to look at Daniel's final week. For you do not know the day or the hour. You don't know exactly when, but you do know the times and the seasons. You know what the world's going to look like. He says, as it was in the times of Noah, so it shall be when the Son of Man comes. 
How was it in the times of Noah? Men waxed worse and worse. Evil became good. Good became evil. We're told what those things are and how the world will look in the very last days. And so this time, this one final week that will begin with a peace treaty with Israel and a time of three and a half years of more than likely prosperity globally. But in the middle of the week, the Antichrist, true colors are going to come out. You know what? I didn't really mean this. And oh, by the way, that temple we built, we're going to desecrate that, and you're going to worship me in there. And he's going to be, build himself an image, the book of Revelation says, which will be able to be seen by everyone globally. You know, we now live in the only age that's ever been on this earth where there is a possibility that simultaneously from one side of the globe to the other, instantaneously we can all watch the same event. That is a brand new technology, by the way. We've been able to use satellites, but satellites require a line of sight. That's why we have them up in space and they quarter off pieces of the planet. And so you can go from one satellite to another satellite with a little bit of lag time. But now we have become so adept with speeding up the transmission times of those satellites that for all intents and purposes, it's, you can watch anything anywhere in the world live. The Bible is amazing. It contains facts about the very last days that once you know them, it causes you to live your life for the Lord uh, with greater and greater uh, severity. As the Antichrist stops the worship in that temple, Israel's temple, as he exalts himself over and above, just exactly as 2 Thessalonians 2 says. As the rebel armies of Armageddon of the world gather together exactly as Joel chapter 3 says, as they gather in the valley of Jehoshaphat and they stretch out all the way down the Jezreel plain to the valley, all the way to Haifa. The pass in the Carmel Mountains is at the city of Haifa. And that valley is 103 miles long. It comes all the way down to Jerusalem. And the very southern terminus of it is actually at the confluence of the Brook Kidron and the Hinnom Stream. And so he says, in the valley of Jehoshaphat, I will gather them together because of what they have done to my children and what they have done to my land and to my people. The Antichrist rises. We know the end because Jesus is coming again. And he himself is going to fight that final battle. He's the one that's going to come and on his thigh will be a name that no one knew, but it will say King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so when the Bible speaks of these things, they're not things for us to sit around and freak out over or fret over. They're so that we would know. Remember what Jesus said. You should have known the day of my appearing. If he said that to his own people, don't you think there's a reason why he told us these things about his next coming? So that we'd be watching and waiting, encouraging one another, sharing the gospel making sure that people that we know know the truth, that they're not caught up in the lie. The prophetic application is actually quite easy to see. The Jews had the calendar, but they didn't use it. They knew the timing, but didn't see it. They should have known the day and the time. They were told from March 14th, 446 B.C., you can count 170,800 88 or 788 days and you can know when I'm coming into Jerusalem and there he is and they're going hmm I don't think that's Messiah don't like him the parable of those ten virgins were to be prepared prepared for what for the second coming make sure your lamp's full of oil because once he comes You can't go buy oil. You need to have it before he gets here. It's too late once he's already... When the horses start coming from heaven, it's over. The time for people to mess around with God will be done. As Israel rejected the Messiah, the Prince, he was cut off, left with nothing. The good news is, 
even though they'll receive the, the next, the false prince, they will also receive their king. And they'll fulfill exactly what scripture says about their destiny, which is one day they will mourn whom they pierced and all Israel will be saved. Amen? Would you stand and we'll close. Amen. Get excited about those days. Don't freak out. Don't go home and build. Don't become a doomsday prepper. Don't, you know, don't build a bomb shelter in your backyard. Build a Bible bunker. Tell people about Jesus. He's told us enough that we know the times and the seasons. Amen? Father, we thank you for the beauty of you giving us a time that we can look at this word tonight and just remember how that you don't want us to be caught unaware. We're supposed to know the times and the seasons, or we should know whether the leaves are withered on the fig tree, or we should know whether the latter rain has come. And God, we pray that you'd fill our hearts with an excitement about sharing our faith and making sure that the people that we come in contact have an opportunity to receive the good news of the gospel. Lord, we pray for national Israel. We, we pray for Prime Minister Netanyahu, the Knesset. Lord, we pray for their Arab neighbors, for the Palestinian people. Lord, we pray for those that are in Egypt, and Saudi Arabia, and Syria. Lord, horribly oppressed. Other people in Lebanon that are bound up under rulership of Hezbollah, Daesh, and ISIS. Lord, we, we just ask that your spirit, now through those that are sharing the good news of the gospel, would reach into the lives of those that are there. And God, we know that it, your word also declares that when the end finally comes, even Saudi Arabia, the Dan, Lord, these, these places that used to be enemies will one day join together as three and be one. Lord, that Egypt will actually come to Israel's aid. And so we look forward to those days when you, you call us home. And until that time, make us a mighty army for you, the king. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.